Good morning, Mosaic. Good morning, good morning. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Bill, and I'm the interim pastor here at Mosaic for the next two months, which I'm excited about. Uh, if, you've, if you're new here, haven't been around here, we uh, are hiring a new lead pastor starting in October, so I'm really, really excited. Yeah, I got a couple woos out of that. Sweet. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I kind of want to reemphasize one of those things that Garrett said. Uh, so we'd like to do this rhythm every now and then where we don't gather here on a Sunday and instead we gather in homes all around the city. And we do that for multiple reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is we are a very volunteer-driven church. Uh, and so we like to take weeks that are some of those holiday weekends that we can just rest. But then also, for us, it's really that undergirding belief that church is not a building, church is not a time, church is not a place, church is people. And so I don't, I don't know if, uh, if you've ever noticed that trying to engage in conversation either before or after a Mosaic gathering, uh, it's impossible to connect with someone. Has anyone ever felt that way? I'm the only one. Okay. <laughs> Deal. Okay. I guess you guys are a lot more social than me. I'm, I'm an awkward introvert in those situations. Uh, so if you're like me, it's really, really difficult to engage to have any type of meaningful long-term conversation um, but, like, one of those things that's totally different is when you can actually gather in each other's homes, share a meal together, share conversations, pray together. Uh, it just, it bonds us. And so we want to do that Labor Day weekend. Uh, and this week is going to be the last week to sign up to host. So if you want to host, if you want to meet people, and guess what? You get to do it on your home turf, right, which makes it even easier, um, is sign up. And then for the next two weeks... Uh, you can, we're going to do a sign-up of all the houses of people who are hosting, and you can choose to go to someone's house. Uh, but I really want that weekend to be a weekend where we really engage. Uh, and if you're going to be around, if you're going to be here, uh, just choose to be part of our family uh, and really engage with each other, with people. So I'm excited. I, I, love, I love those weekends. Um, we've been in this series called Kingdom of Losers, Right? Uh, we've been in it for a long time. Uh, we've been really exploring these parables that Jesus told. Uh, I think this is like week eight or something. And we have three weeks left. Uh, and so this series has been really pivotal for me. Uh, I, I've loved the theme. And I think even the place that we find ourselves in today, uh, it's such an important conversation for us to have. Because in life, I think there is this thing in our gut where we do, we want to get ahead, we want to win. But Jesus is calling us to lose our life so that we can find it, to become the least and the lowest, because the first is last and the last is first. He's a part of this upside-down kingdom that he's forming. And so we've been learning about what this kingdom looks like, what this grace looks like through the parables that Jesus told, right? And if you remember the lost son, right, lose, lose yourself to the idea. Lose the idea that the harder you work, the more God loves you, right? The parable of the workers in the field was week two. Lose the idea that the longer you work, the more loved you are, right? The tax collector, lose to the idea that the more pious and moralistic and religious you are, the more God loves you. Uh, the rich fool, lose to the idea that your successes and your things and your possessions uh, will give you f- satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. Uh, the parable of the treasure in the field, that faith, this kingdom is so worth it that when we find it, we will sell everything, we will lose everything for it. Uh, 
the rich man and Lazarus lose the idea that there are some people who deserve your love and some people who don't. And then the unforgiving servant last week lose, lose your pain and allow yourself to forgive others. And I think forgiving others, especially right now, feels really difficult. Um, you know, I think it's easier for us to, to love families and victims of the atrocities that happen in Charlottesville. Uh, but then when we look at Jesus' words and he says, I, I need you to actually love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, uh, what does it look like to love that people group? Because now it's becoming really real in our hearts and in our lives. And what does it look like to live this life of love and peace? And so there's a challenge today. There's a challenge. And I think the conversation that we're going to step into and the parable that Jesus tells has major implications to where we find ourselves right now. So the parable that we're going to talk about today is the parable of the sign of Jonah, which sometimes it doesn't really seem like it's a parable, uh, but it is. Uh, in this parable, I want to start off by reading it. It's, it's fairly short. Uh, so this is what the parable says. It's found in the book of Matthew chapter 12, if you'd like to follow along in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 38. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? So today I really want to step into this conversation of signs, wonders, miracles, proof. Right? I want us to step into this conversation today uh, and really answer some questions. The questions being, why do the Pharisees need a sign from Jesus? Why do the religious elite of that day need a sign from Jesus? Uh, why didn't Jesus actually just do it? He's totally capable of doing it. Why didn't he do it? And then what implications does it actually have on our life here and now today? Uh, so those are the things I want to talk about. Um, and I, I definitely, I want to, on the front end, talk a little bit about miracles. Because I'm guessing if you're in here today, you're either a person of faith or you're an explorer of faith. I mean, why else would you be here? I mean, maybe unless you met a girl on two weeks ago and she said, oh, I go to this place called Mosaic, and she thought you were taking, or you thought she was taking you to an art gallery or something. I don't know. And you're just like bait and switched, and you're here. All right, so I'm guessing that uh, you're either a person of faith or you're exploring faith. And so if you are a person of faith or you explore, uh, typically the conversation of miracles comes up. Because you open the Bible and there seems to be miracles all over the place. Page one, God creates everything with his voice. We find uh, Moses talks to God through a burning bush. We see uh, them in the wilderness Moses and the Israelite people in the wilderness who are fed miraculously for 40 years of this magical thing that falls from the sky called manna, right? And so we see so many miracles, and then even you read the New Testament, and Jesus just says miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and it, it, it begs the question, and I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question when you read through the scriptures, is why don't those things happen today? Has anyone ever asked himself that question before? I know I have. Why, do, why don't I see those things today? Why don't those things happen today? Why don't I see those signs? Why don't I see those wonders? 
And so I think it's an important question for us to ask. But then we need to ask ourselves the question, have you ever seen a miracle happen? Uh, Have you ever prayed for a miracle to happen? Right? Has anyone actually ever seen a miracle? Not many. And I'm not talking about like a fake miracle, like kids being born. (laughs) Right? I just offended every mom in the room, by the way. (laughs) Right? Moses parts the Red Sea once, and there's been about 109 billion people estimated who have ever been born. So one to 109 billion. I'm just kidding. Kids are miracles. I love kids. I really do. I mean, the fact that two cells come together and those multiply, and then all of a sudden it becomes a living, breathing human being with a soul that is an image bearer of God that actually shares personality traits of its two parents and kind of looks like a mix of the two. It's crazy, right? Kids are crazy. It is. It's miraculous. It is. So uh, don't be too mad at me. I do love kids. But I know, like, I, I, I feel like I've prayed for a lot of miracles in my life. I've prayed for a lot of things. And I, I, I feel like God has, I've seen things, right? I've prayed for miraculous healing of my body so that I could have biological kids. It didn't happen, but then I was provided this miracle where this son came to be a part of my family through adoption, right? I've seen miracles happen in my dad's life. I saw miraculously healed of addiction in his life. I've seen healing in a, uh, of my own addictions being healed in my life. I can remember a time when I was 19 years old, and I was so mad at God. I said, God, I'm out. I don't believe in you anymore. Unless you show me a shooting star like streak across the sky right here and right now, I'm done. I'm out. And a shooting star goes across the sky. I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. All right? But if you are a skeptical person, I'm a skeptical person, you can even hear those things and say to yourself, that sounds a lot like coincidence. That sounds a lot like chance. And, and, and so I think when we, when we enter into this place where we begin to ask ourselves the question, why don't we see miracles today? Why don't we see signs? Why doesn't God show himself? Like, if God is real, why doesn't he just do that shooting star across the sky to every single person who lives so that we could just be done with the argument already? Why doesn't that just happen? With all the healing that needs to happen in the world, why doesn't God just do something? Why doesn't he just, like, take care of it all? Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but have you asked yourself those questions? Because if you have asked those questions before, what's great about this parable is you find yourself in the story now. And you find yourself in the story as one of the Pharisees asking Jesus the question, show us a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. And it's okay to put yourself in the place of that Pharisee. I think a lot of times we don't want to be convicted. We don't want to be changed. We don't want to be shaped. It's okay to put ourselves in that place. And so we find ourselves in this story as a person who needs and wants a miraculous sign. So now that we find ourselves in that place, Uh, Let's dig into this story again. So first line says, then some of the Pharisees, uh, let's put ourselves, you and me and teachers of the law said to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. And now if we actually were able to read this whole chapter, so this is verse 38. If we were able to read the whole chapter, you would actually see how ridiculous of a statement this is. Because what happens about 20 verses before, 30 verses before, starting in verse 9, right at the beginning of the chapter, 
Here's a story that's told. It says, going from that place, Jesus went into a synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Uh, Just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. And he warned them not to tell others about it. Right? Teacher, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Like literally, 30 verses before, they see Jesus do a miracle. They see him do it. Which, which really, I think, kind of brings us into... Uh, the idea of proof or miracles or signs or wonders. So when we see these things happen, right, for a moment, they provide a momentary relief. But we always want to see it again. Because we are creatures that when we see proof, we want more proof. And then we want more proof. And then we want more proof. And now the Pharisees in this story, they do have ulterior motives. We see what they are. Like they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so in this story, the reason uh, when, you put, when you think about the Pharisees, even if Jesus would have shown them a sign, either one of two things would have happened. They were, they were going to want to see another sign or they would just accuse him of like being, doing witchcraft, right? Or being possessed by the devil, which they actually do. So if you keep reading in that chapter, the very next story after this, what happens is a demon-possessed man shows up. Jesus heals this man, and then the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being possessed by the devil, and that's why he was able to heal the person of being demon-possessed. Right? And so when we, when we see ourselves in this story, what I really want us to focus on, though, is this idea that we inherently feel that when we see proof, when we see big, huge, huge things, big signs, big wonders, it's in our nature to want to see that again, to see more and more and more proof. And this is really the, the part of the conversation. And when we find ourselves, uh, when we find ourselves in the story, Right? When we find ourselves in that place and we realize, okay, if miracles, if proof, if I, if I need to keep seeing it over and over again, what implications does that have on my life and on yours? Right? And where, even if we personalize this now, so where are we constantly trying in our own life to prove ourselves? Where are we, where are we ourselves trying to prove ourselves to ourselves or prove ourselves to others? or prove ourselves even to God in our faith? Where, where, where are we in, in the midst of that conversation? Because I think that this parable has implications for that as well. Because I know if you're like me, like I, I've found myself in that place many times in my life. And what Jesus says to the Pharisees, what he says to them is, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given except a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Because Jesus knows if I show you a sign, you're just going to ask for it again. If I show you proof, you're just going to want more proof. But I'm going to give you proof. And I'm going to give you a proof that is above all other proof. And if you accept this, you're with me. And if you reject this, you're not. And what that is, is I'm going to die. And I'm going to be buried in the earth for three days. And then I will come back. That is the sign, that is the only sign that I'm going to give you. Because that, what we have to realize, is the sign above all signs. That is the miracle above all miracles. See, proof always needs more proof. What Jesus says is, this is the proof above proofs. When you see this, you either have to accept or reject. You're not going to be able to ask for another sign. You're not going to be able to ask for more and more and more proof. Uh, and when I, when I think about the implications to my own life, where I feel like I am trying to prove myself to myself, or I'm trying to prove myself to others, or I'm trying to prove myself to God, I feel like I've lived that way most of my life. I, I can remember growing up, and I loved playing soccer, and, uh, but I was really bad at it. I, I think I was in second or third grade, and I was so bad at soccer, the ball was coming to me, and I went to kick it, and I whiffed so bad that I kicked my own teammate and broke his leg. <laughs> you know, I guess I had a lot of power with no accuracy. I still don't understand how me as like a second or third grader broke another kid's leg. Oh, man, I was, I was bad. But I, I, I wanted to prove myself, so I worked hard. I worked so hard because I loved soccer and I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to prove myself. And then senior year of high school, I was MVP of my high school soccer team. And I I remember being at the award ceremony and getting that award. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. And I remember this was finally the proof that I needed that I was good. Proof that I was worthy. Proof that I had it. And uh, I remember putting up the, this MVP plaque on my wall and just being really proud. And then just slowly, over the next few weeks, months, it kind of lost its power. It didn't, have it, it, it didn't have the proof that it did at the time. And I felt like I needed to do it again. I needed to prove myself again. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm going to play soccer in high school. Because if I'm MVP of my high, or in college, if I'm MVP of my high school soccer team, surely I can play college soccer. And so every team I tried out for, I didn't make the team. And I remember feeling just kind of demeaned because realizing this is the end. This is the end of my career. I played soccer every single year of my life until, uh, until college. And, and that affected me. It really did. Because when we, when we have proof, we need more proof and more proof. And what we have to realize is it's this never-ending spiral Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. So I grew up in the era of uh, Michael Jordan where won uh, championships six out of eight years. And the only reason they didn't win eight out of eight is because he needed to prove himself by playing baseball. It's like, what are you doing? You're the greatest basketball player alive and you want to play baseball? Um, And then Michael Jordan in his Hall of Fame speech in 2009 right? Without a doubt, almost every single person in the room would say, you're the greatest basketball player who ever lived, still felt like he needed to prove himself. So in that speech, what he does is he calls out his high school coach, 
for not putting him on the varsity team his sophomore year, right? In his speech, he also, he, uh, he calls out, um, oh, he calls out the Sports Illustrated for not putting him on the cover of Sports Illustrated his freshman year at North Carolina. Uh, and then what he does, with, this is the best one, he calls out, uh, what's his name, Byron Russell. Do you guys remember game six of the Utah Jazz? Uh, you guys don't remember. I remember because I was a kid. I loved it. But it's the, it's the greatest basketball play of all time. At the end of the game, he crosses over Byron Russell, pushes him with his left hand, and then hits a perfect jump shot right at the end of the game to win the game. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. And he calls him out in his Hall of Fame speech. Right, This man who is the greatest basketball player of all time still felt like he needed to prove himself, to prove he was the best. So where in your life do you find yourself in that? Where do you find yourself where you're constantly trying to prove yourself to yourself or you're trying to prove yourself to someone else? You're trying to prove yourself at your job or you're trying to prove yourself in your relationship that you love that person or you're trying to prove yourself to God in your faith. See, because Jesus, what he's doing in this story and the implications for us here and now is that he's showing us a different way. He's showing us that this constant need of sign and miracles and proof, it is this never-ending spiral. And then what he's showing us, he's showing us what the greatest sign, the greatest wonder, the greatest miracle is. And what that is is his death, burial, and resurrection. And the implications are we get to join him in that. We get to join him in his death and be resurrected to new life. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, reflecting on this, when he talks about baptism. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. We too. See, what we need to realize is that is the miracle. That is the miracle above all miracles, right? That we no longer have to live a life where we're so obsessed with ourselves or so obsessed with our own lives, where we, we can die to those things so that Jesus can live through us and we can actually have life. See, I've been around Jesus' church for a long time. And I think there's this thing that sort of gets tied into the church, which is Jesus said the words that, uh, that his followers will do greater things than him. And so what, we, what kind of begins to transpire sometimes in the church is that we want to see big, huge miracles. We want to see, uh, see stadiums packed with people. We want to see thousands miraculously healed. We want to see these big, huge signs and wonders because we think that is the end-all, be-all. Like, those are good things, but we think that is the pinnacle. I can remember I was part of this Bible college when I lived in Scotland, and there was this girl who always had this earache. And every day we would pray for her, for healing to come, because she had this severe earache. She had this ringing in her ear for months, and it didn't go away. It wouldn't go away. And we'd pray for her every day. And I remember she asked the question, do I not have enough faith? Because the Bible says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Why, why is my ear not being healed? Do I not have enough faith? And essentially what they told her is, yeah, maybe. Right? Because we've come to this place where we think, uh, we think we have to prove ourselves. We think we have to do these big, huge 
grand things. But what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that the miracle above all miracles is this death to self so that Jesus can live through us. Uh, Mother Teresa was recently declared a saint by the Catholic Church. Uh, Does anyone know what actually gave her her sainthood? Anyone? So what actually gave her a sainthood, declared officially a saint, um, was there was two miracles that were performed after she died. Right? So these two miracles is that she had... Uh, there was a pendant with her picture on it, and someone was healed of a tumor. And then there was some guy in, I think it was Brazil, who had prayed to Mother Teresa for healing. Uh, and it was something to do with his brain, and he was healed. Right? So the reason why she was declared a saint is because of two miracles that she performed after she died. And to me, that's crazy. It's absolutely insane. The reason why it's insane is, first of all, uh, the Bible in the New Testament declares us saints, right? If we follow Jesus, if we take on Jesus' holiness as ours, if we die to ourselves so Jesus lives through us, we are declared a saint. We are declared a royal priesthood, right? But the second thing is, this woman lives this amazing life. She lives this life where she, she embodied uh, a death to self so that Jesus could live through her. She takes this vow of poverty. She loves people in India who were declared not even human. She lives this phenomenal, profound life. And the reason why she's declared a saint is because of these two miracles that happened after she died. And not her whole life and what she did. That is the miracle. That is the miracle of all miracles. And that is what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that the miracle, the proof above all proofs is the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is that just as Jesus died and was resurrected, we can enter into that life today. And we can die to this idea that we always have to prove ourselves to ourselves. We always have to prove ourselves to others or we always even have to prove ourselves to God. And Jesus is saying, you can also enter into this sign of Jonah today. And so I wonder, for you, here and now today, what is, what is that place in your heart that you feel like you need to let go of? That you need to die to? Where do you see yourself in this story as one of the Pharisees where you're constantly asking God for a sign? And how can today, how can you engage and enter into the sign of Jonah? To say, Jesus, I really want to die to myself so that you can live through me. So that my life looks as if uh, you were still living. So that the things that I get to step into are the things that you would step into if you lived my life. And going in every situation, in our work, in our homes as if Jesus was there and Jesus was present and Jesus was a part of every decision we made, uh, that we die to ourselves so Jesus can live through us. And so really through this series every week, we've been sharing communion together uh, because this kingdom that we get to be a part of is good news, right? Because when we die to those things, that is when we experience life. It's freeing. It's It's not a place where we feel guilt or shame or condemnation anymore. Because the scriptures declare there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because when we enter into this life, we can let go of that past. We can let go of that pain. We can let go of all those ways where we're trying to prove ourselves. And we can say, Jesus, I want your flesh to be my flesh. I want your blood to be my blood. Because your blood on the cross cleansed me from my sin and my past and my guilt and my shame and all those ways I tried to prove myself. And your body was broken on that cross so that you can be a part of this, right? And Jesus' blood was shed so that God's spirit can live in us. And so if today, if you're in that place where you say, I I want that, then during the last song, we invite you, we invite all of you to come forward and share communion with us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to be free. Uh, And we're going to share communion together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much uh, that we have your words. We thank you so much uh, for the Bible writers who took the things that you said and they wrote them down so that even 2,000 years later, your words can shape us. And Jesus, we are so grateful that you sacrificed your body on the cross so that your blood cleanses our bodies, cleanses our temple so that you can live in us and that we together can be this spiritual house that you are building in the world. And Jesus, today I know there are people in the room that are just like me, that we're constantly looking for signs. We're constantly looking for wonders. We're constantly looking for these big, huge things for you to prove yourself or for us to prove ourselves to you. And so today, Jesus, we just, we lay those at your feet and we say, I'm going to die to proving myself. I'm going to die to all those ways that I need to prove myself to myself, prove myself to others, prove myself to you. And I'm going to become the least. I'm going to become the lowest, the poor, the unloved, because it's only when I'm at the bottom I can love everyone from the bottom up. And Jesus, today we embrace your miracle as a miracle that we can step into today, the greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle, which is a life lived for others rather than self. Jesus, shape that in us today. As we share communion, speak profoundly to our souls and to our minds that we will leave this place today transformed by your good news. That we will leave today free, free from guilt, free from shame, and that we can actually see peace come in the world through our hands because you are at work in this world and we get to be servants of your work in this world. God, we pray for our world today all the hate, all the division, all the war. And we declare that we need to be people of peace. And we need to pray for those who are hurting. And we need to pray for those who we hate. Jesus, shape us today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.